1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Amen. And may God bless to us that reading from his word. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? O oh Lord, as we come to study your word together, we pray that we may receive it as it is indeed the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you want the good news or the, the bad news? Sorry, I, I didn't quite catch that. Do you want the good news or the bad news? The bad news. Well, the bad news is that the Thessalonian Christians gave the Apostle Paul cause for concern. They gave him cause for concern. The good news is that they gave him cause for thanksgiving. Cause for concern, cause for thanksgiving. To understand why this was the case, we need to know something about the background to this letter. Thessalonica was the proud capital of the Roman province of Macedonia in what is today northern Greece. Paul and his friends Timothy and Silas had come to the city with the gospel. Over a number of weeks they had shared the gospel and a number of people had responded and become Christians. But some Jews in the city opposed Paul and his friends. They didn't like this newfangled message about a Jesus who died, 
on a, Roman, on a cross in Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman authorities. And so they instigated public unrest. They got together a mob who dragged some of the new believers before the city authorities. They accused them of sedition against the Roman emperor. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, they shouted. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. There was a grain of truth in their accusation. Paul and his friends were indeed proclaiming another king, King Jesus. Having triumphed over death, Jesus was now seated on the throne of the universe. He had all power in heaven and on earth. But while Jesus' kingship had implications for the whole of life, the Christian message wasn't primarily political. But the Thessalonians weren't prepared to take any chances. They didn't want to bring the wrath of the Roman Empire down upon themselves. And the situation in the city became so tense that Paul and his friends were forced to leave under cover of darkness. So the fledgling church in Thessalonica was born in the midst of unrest and tension. And things remained difficult for the Christians. They were persecuted. Life was far from easy for them. And that was why they gave Paul reason for concern. In our passage this morning, Paul tells the Thessalonians how leaving them had caused him a great deal of angst. He had been torn from them, he says in verse 17, in person, not in heart. He'd left them not because he'd wanted to, but because he had had to. And knowing the difficulties they faced as new believers, he was anxious about how they were getting on. On a number of occasions, he had made plans to pay them a return visit. But it seems that on each occasion, his plans were thwarted. As he says in verse 17 and 18, verses 17 and 18, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul appears to have been aware of some specific demonic opposition to his plans. We don't know what form that opposition took. We don't know exactly how Paul knew that it was Satan who was behind it all. But let's note in passing that Satan is real and that he is implacably opposed to the purposes of God in the world and in the lives of his people. But let's remember too that Satan never has the last word. Satan never has the last word. He can do only what the Lord in his wisdom allows him to do. In the end, Paul decided to send his colleague Timothy to Thessalonica. Look at what he says in verse 5 of chapter 3. I sent Timothy to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. These are interesting words. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
Paul wanted to find out about the Thessalonians' faith. More specifically, he wanted to know if their faith was holding up. Behind his desire for news about the Thessalonians lay a genuine concern that Satan might have tempted them to give up on their Christian commitment. Paul was afraid they might have abandoned their faith on account of the persecution they were suffering. Had it all proved too much? Had Paul's hard work come to nothing? Paul had reason for concern. Now, let's think about that for a moment. It's clear that Paul wasn't blasé about the Thessalonians' progress in the Christian life. He didn't sit back and assume things would be fine because they'd made an initial commitment. He wanted to know they were remaining strong in the faith. He wanted to know that they were keeping on, keeping on. For Paul, it wasn't enough that they had started well. He wanted to find out how they were doing. He wanted them to finish well too. They needed to hold on to their faith day by day, week by week, month by month. And that wasn't easy in Thessalonica. Paul believed that it was God's Spirit who brought people to faith in Jesus, and who sustained them in their faith. That's what he told the Christians in Philippi. He said that where God had begun a good work, he would bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Faith was God's gift. But it was also something that people had to exercise. When Paul and his friends were in jail in Philippi, Remember how the jailer asked them the question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer came back, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There was something the jailer had to do. He needed to put his faith in Jesus. That's how the Christian life begins. And it's by faith that the Christian life continues. Paul again The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now that he'd been away from Thessalonica for some time, Paul wanted to be sure that his converts were still actively believing in Jesus because it was only if they were still trusting in him despite all the pressures they were facing that he could be sure that God had indeed begun a good work in them. I find this illustration helpful. Uh, I hope you do too. It's a busy Saturday afternoon in central Edinburgh. I'm walking along Princess Street with my four-year-old daughter. And I turn to her and I say to her, remember to keep holding my hand. Keep a hold of my hand. There's something I'm asking her to do. I'm making a perfectly reasonable request. It's something she needs to do. She needs to keep hold of my hand. But the greater reality is that I am holding her hand 
and have no intention of letting it go. She holds my hand at the same time as I hold her hand. In a similar way, we, if we are Christians, have a responsibility to hold on to the Lord by faith, even though the greater reality is that he is holding on to us. You see, we don't live the Christian life on autopilot. There's effort involved. Someone has described the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. We may not face the severe persecution the Thessalonians were suffering, but in our society, Christians are becoming marginalized, and Christianity becomes increasingly countercultural. That creates a whole host of pressure points. And there's still a tempter out there, one who seeks to lure us away from clear Christian commitment. And then there's the continuing downdrag of our own sinful natures. We mustn't allow ourselves to be blown off course. I'm not saying that every time we have a wobble, every time we find our faith under pressure, Every time we battle with doubt, we're in imminent danger of giving up on our faith. Not at all. What should bother us is when these things no longer concern us. When we consciously put our faith on the back burner or simply allow ourselves to drift. How can we avoid that? Well, one thing we can do is to have realistic expectations of the Christian life. In my office, one of the big challenges we have as regards staff is to manage expectations. And it's important that Christians manage their expectations of the Christian life. Paul, when he was in Thessalonica, had taught the Thessalonian Christians that the Christian life would not be easy. He wanted to prepare them for the challenges which lay ahead. After all, Christians follow a master who went through suffering to glory. And that's the pattern for each one of his followers. Bound up with realistic expectations of the Christian life is the importance of receiving good teaching in the fellowship of the church. That was one reason why Timothy was sent to Thessalonica. He he was sent to find out how the Thessalonians were doing, but also to strengthen them, to exhort them. They needed encouragement, and we need encouragement too if we are to keep going as Christians in the Christian life. We need to share biblical truth with one another. We need to encourage one another. These are important aspects of our meeting week by week as a fellowship of the Lord's people. The Thessalonians gave Paul reason for concern. That was the bad news But the good news was that they gave him reason for thanksgiving. Look with me, please, at verse 13 of chapter 2. We also thank God constantly for this, 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The man was in the open air trying to draw a crowd. He was wagging his finger as he pointed at a top hat that lay on the ground. It's alive, he shouted. It's alive. That man was the Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon. And he was trying to draw a crowd in order to preach the gospel. What do you think lay under the hat? Well, when he lifted the hat, underneath was a Bible. Spurgeon was making the point that the Bible was living, it was active, it was dynamic. Paul saw evidence of that during his time in Thessalonica. He saw something of the impact of his message in the lives of the new believers. They accepted the gospel as a message from God. They didn't treat it like another human philosophy. They didn't regard it as someone's bright ideas. No, they received it as the word of God. They believed that Paul and his friends were bringing a message from God and speaking with his authority. And it had a transformative effect on their lives. It changed them. It began to work in them. They believed the gospel to be true. And as they responded to it, it began to change them from the inside out. If Paul saw evidence of that when he was in Thessalonica, he had much more evidence now that he knew that in spite of severe persecution, the Thessalonian Christians were holding steady. Look what he says in verse 14. Having made the point that they received the message as the word of God, he says in verse 14, for, which indicates that he's giving the reason for what he has previously said, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Paul was confident the Thessalonians had accepted the gospel as the word of God because they were prepared to suffer for it. Their willingness to suffer for the gospel showed their faith was real. It showed they had experienced the power of the gospel and were living in the good of it. Isn't it interesting that the suffering and persecution which caused Paul concern were also the focus of his thanksgiving? The persecution could have blown the Thessalonians completely off course, but the fact it didn't prove the reality of their faith. And that filled Paul with joy. He says in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now he knew his Thessalonian converts were standing firm in their faith. Paul looked forward to presenting them to the Lord Jesus at his second coming. They would be proof that his work in the Lord was not in vain. 
they would spend eternity with him in the Lord's presence. His investment in their lives would have lasting consequences. As it turned out, Paul had no reason to be concerned, but he had ample reason for thanksgiving. I'd like to highlight three simple points by way of application. One, Paul's message was the Word of God. We call the Bible the Word of God, and and so it is. The 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are God's Word written, the unique inspired record of God's revelation of Himself to mankind. In the message which he shared with the Thessalonians, Paul no doubt quoted the Old Testament Scriptures, but he wouldn't have restricted himself to the words of Scripture in speaking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And yet his message was the Word of God. He used his own words, but he was articulating God's truth. Paul was, of course, an apostle, but there's a sense in which the same thing is true of us— Whenever we share the gospel, whenever we share biblical truth, to the extent to which what we say is faithful to Scripture, we are conveying the Word of God. And God can use what we say by the power of His Spirit to impact other people's lives. Perhaps this week, we can be channels of the dynamic and life-changing Word of God. Paul's message was the Word of God. Two, the Thessalonians' faith was reflected in the way they lived their lives. It was because they believed the message Paul had shared with them that they remained strong in the face of persecution. What they believed impacted how they lived. Their faith wasn't just in their heads. It wasn't mere assent to a set of propositions. It was worked out in practical day-to-day living. It gave them steadiness in the face of suffering. It enabled them to keep going when the going got tough. It was the practical outworking of their faith that gave Paul confidence. Their faith was genuine. Christian faith is more than accepting a set of beliefs. It's more than accepting a creed. That's an important aspect of faith. Of course it is. But genuine faith is reflected in how we live. It's a faith that works. A faith that expresses itself in love. It's a faith that is at work in those who believe. The heroes of faith who are listed for us in Hebrews chapter 11 didn't just believe God's promises, they acted on them. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The challenge for all of us who call ourselves Christians is this. 
what difference does our faith make to the way we actually live our lives day by day? If we were arrested for being Christians, would there be enough evidence to convict us? And three, opposition to the gospel came from an unexpected source. In the first century world, a lot of the opposition to the fledgling Christian church came from Jews, God's covenant people, who had the Old Testament, who had enjoyed so many religious privileges. That's what Paul says in verses 15 and 16, when he says that the Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. These are strong words. Over the past few days, there's been a lot in the news about anti-Semitism in politics. Well, over the centuries, Paul has been accused of being anti-Semitic on account of these words in 1 Thessalonians. But basically, what he's doing is pointing out that many Jews were refusing to recognize Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Not only that, they were making life difficult for those Jew and Gentile who did believe in Jesus. And of course, this is not all that Paul has to say about his fellow Jews. Elsewhere, he says that he would gladly forfeit his own salvation if that would somehow secure the salvation of his fellow Jews. Opposition to the gospel came from an unexpected source. And perhaps if we are not Christians, it's worth asking ourselves, why not? We may have an impressive religious pedigree, but that's not enough. We may have had a long-standing church connection, but that's not enough. We may have been in Sunday school and Bible class, that's not enough. Despite all these things, we may be opposed to the gospel in our heart. I know some people, and when you mention the gospel, you can almost see their hackles rising. If that describes you, then you need to ask the Lord to melt your hard heart and help you see Jesus for who he is. Reason for concern, reason for thanksgiving. Shortly we'll come to the Lord's table where the broken bread and poured out wine remind us that Jesus gave himself for our salvation. As we eat and drink, we're proclaiming that we identify with Jesus in his death and share in the benefits which his death secured. Ultimately, it's by feeding on him, by faith, with thanksgiving, that we nourish our faith and are enabled to press on in the Christian life.
That's one way in which we can ensure that reason for concern becomes reason for thanksgiving. There's a fight to be fought and a race to be run. There are dangers to meet by the way. But the Lord is my light and the Lord is my life and the Lord is my strength and stay. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge it brings us as well as the comfort it affords us. We recognize that so often your word comforts the disturbed and disturbs those who are otherwise comfortable. Lord, help us to respond to what you have to say to us through your word by faith and in obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.